Hello, internet and anyone listening. I'm Angelique, and this is episode 22 of Read Your Heart Out. And before you throw any tomatoes at me for being away for so long, I am so sorry. Life really does come at me sometimes, and I don't have quite a lot of space on my own to make this podcast as much as I want to. But I decided the easiest way to bring me back is the way that I always get brought back to this podcast for some reason, and that is finishing a Thomas Hardy novel, because today we're here to talk about my man, my boy, the fucking owner of my heart, Thomas Hardy. Um, Now, your brain might be racking through which story I could possibly be talking about, and we know it's not The Mayor of Casterbridge, I already did that one, and we know it's not Tess of the Durbervilles, I already did that one as well. I almost did one about Jude the Obscure, which I read, but... That seems a little bit too bleak, even for Thomas Hardy and even for me, who loves bleak, depressing stories. But then, rounding out 2022, I read maybe my favorite Thomas Hardy book of all of them. Mayor of Casterbridge has a special place in my heart, but I finished Thomas Hardy's 1874 romance novel called Far From the Madding Crowd. And oh my God, you guys, I was so obsessed with this book. I literally, it is like one of my favorite things that happened to me the, this year was the ending of Far From the Madding Crowd. I was so happy with the way that it ended. Thomas Hardy doesn't usually give me those kinds of endings. And so the fact that it did happen the way it did, I was literally jumping up and down screaming for joy. I loved it so much. I can't even express how much I loved it. But it's one of those things where I'm like, you know what? This is a story that needs to be shared. And I know it's been a while, everyone. And I wish I could promise you that I'll be more consistent. But this is just um, kind of just an artistic outlet for me at this point. I'm not going to make a career out of podcasting. We all know this. But I needed to come back and talk because this book has been sitting in my brain since the minute I flipped the last page and I knew that I was going to come back here and spend an hour chatting about it. So without further adieu, um, I do apologize for taking this long, but we are going to talk about Thomas Hardy's 1874 novel, Far From the Matting Crowd. All right. Our story starts through the eyes of a new shepherd named Gabriel Oak. Gabriel recently acquired a loan that allowed him to lease a farm and stock it with sheep and all the necessary tools for the job. Um, Just as his adventure in farming is set to truly begin, Gabriel happens upon a young woman riding a horse through his little village. He watches as she rides with ease and joyousness, not often seen in the demure women of his life and in his circle. And just as it seems this mysterious new beauty is about to collide head on with an overhanging shrub, she leans all the way back on her horse, essentially parallel with the horse's body, and narrowly misses the searching branches above. This scene is a momentary instance of foreshadowing for our young female protagonist who is yet to be named. While Gabriel sees the danger ahead of her and above her and all around her, Our heroine refuses to choose a safe course and instead takes on a risky maneuver in an effort to avoid the painful scratches of the reaching trees above. Eventually, our two main characters meet, and Gabriel is introduced formally to Miss Bathsheba Everdeen, a recent arrival to his village who has been staying with her nearby aunt. Now, the reason I bring up this initial introduction between them is because There'll be this reoccurring theme of Bathsheba's beauty capturing the attention of everyone around her, kind of bringing them in, in a very typical stereotype type of way, where she's so beautiful, men can't happen to notice her. And Gabriel, he's not one to really, like, give in to those kinds of, like, emotions and feelings within himself, but he sees her riding her horse, which... She's riding it in a different style that's that's typical for women of that time. And then also to watch her see the danger ahead and instead of avoid it, choose to just go through it in her own way is literally something we will see continuously throughout this book. And it's just such a perfect instance of setting up who our characters will be from here on out because Bathsheba and Gabriel are pretty much the main two people throughout this entire story. And he, Gabriel, is such a by-the-books kind of guy. He's he's very, like, not necessarily simple-minded, just, like, kind of, like, acts in a very simple way. Like, he's not going to go above and beyond what needs to be done. He's just going to put his nose to the grindstone, work his way through his life the way that he wants to get to where he wants to be, and, and that's it, you know? There's no, like, excess of danger or excess of emotion going on in his head. But then... We have Miss Bathsheba, who just comes barreling through his life, essentially, and completely changes his whole perception. Um, He eventually meets her, 
Eight years his junior, Gabriel is immediately taken with her fiery attitude and beguiling beauty, finding many reasons to have interactions with the enigmatic young woman throughout the course of the few weeks that they know each other. Through this few weeks, they form a very tentative friendship, and in one extreme instance of Gabriel being fatigued and overworked and a little bit the losing sight of what he was doing, um, he nearly sets a small shack on fire while tending to his flock. He's trying to, uh, there's new sheep being born, so he's out in the pasture with them, and he's got this little tiny shack that he uses for instances like this, and he forgets to open the flute on his little, um, uh, like, chimney. Yeah, that's what it is. So there's, like, wood burning, and he's not releasing the smoke. So the smoke fills the whole shack up, and he's in there sleeping, and Bathsheba just so happens to be passing through, she thankfully finds him before it's too late and saves his life, really. This has a profound effect on Gabriel, who can't forget the kindness she showed him, and she's already wormed his way into his mind and his heart. So he proposes an offer of marriage to Bathsheba that she staunchly refuses. Her independence is her highest valued asset, and her strong-willed heart refuses to bend to a man she doesn't claim to have any love for. So within a few days of this rejected proposal, Gabriel learns that Bathsheba has moved to a village some ways away called Weatherbury and essentially leaves him to sulk in his loneliness and his bachelortude and his rejection um, and just pursue his life as a farmer, knowing that Bathsheba Everdeen will be this fleeting instance of beauty and want that he couldn't quite attain. Time flows ever onward, and Gabriel finds himself returning to business as usual. This time, he's accompanied by a new sheepdog to help his flock. He already has a dog named George, who is his like, right-hand man, really, but he gets a new dog because he's got quite a big flock. Um, unfortunately, this dog's inexperience comes back to bite Gabriel when a major storm alerts the dog to herd the sheep back home, um, but instead, he accidentally herds them through a broken patch of a gate. Um, this breach in the barrier leads to nothing but sheer drops into a rugged cliff face, which becomes the fate of Gabriel's sheep. Uh, one by one, his sheepdog herds each creature through the hole and down to their death, ruining Gabriel mon monetarily and professionally. This is one of those scenes that I was like, holy crap, it's it's pretty well detailed in the writing and the image of Gabriel watching as his sheep literally plummet to their death and just die on the rocks of this cliff face um, is really, really sad. It's just one of those moments where there's nothing he can quite do about it. It's not his fault that this dog is young and untrained and it was doing its job, but it just did it through a hole in the fence. And Gabriel literally watches as his whole life professionally and monetarily just falls, crumbles. Um, so with no choice but to sell off his remaining items of value and leaving him with nothing, Gabriel travels to surrounding towns of Casterbridge <laughs> and Shotsford in search of jobs through their local fairs. So if you don't know this about Thomas Hardy's books... He has a Wessex collection, which is his fictionary version of England, I'm pretty sure. Um, so he creates these little towns that pop up throughout the rest of his books. So obviously, Casterbridge, like the mayor of Casterbridge, it's a major town in this area of his Wessex location. And it it has come up in almost every single story of his that I've read, kind of making him one of those first uh, universe-creating people, which I think is really fun and interesting. But um Gabriel passes through Casterbridge. He passes through Shotsford. Um, unfortunately, his luck continues to run short as these towns offer no new source of employment for him, but he is told to try a nearby village of Weatherbury in hopes of possible opportunities. So Gabriel goes to Weatherbury. He's on his way. Um, and as he's walking through, he sees a massive fire, like a farm on fire, and he stops to help the bystanders in putting it out because he has such experience with farming stuff and stuff like that. So he helps putting it out. And all this time, all the people in the village are like, wow, thank God for this guy, the shepherd that showed up, you know, like whoever owns this this farm, he kind of like they're indebted to Gabriel for helping not burn all their crops down pretty much. Um, and eventually that person who owns the farm shows up at the scene 
it's a veiled woman. They don't know who it is. And she, well, the villagers do, but Gabriel doesn't know who it is. And he goes up to her and, you know, like to say like, hey, this is was taken care of. She unveils herself to thank the shepherd and by doing so uncovers who is the woman underneath the veil. And it's none other than Bathsheba Everdeen, who has recently come into um, ownership of her uncle's farm, which is the farm in Weatherbury. Her uncle passed, leaving the farm to her. And she's now has the entire estate and is very wealthy. Um, so it's this very uncomfortable switch in positions where Bathsheba is the one in charge of a farm and she meets Gabriel who is so down on his luck he really can't be any more down on his luck and bashfully and shyly kind of asks her do you need a shepherd do you need someone to work for you and not wanting to send him away in front of all of her people and also she does owe him a debt he saved her like farm and saved her profits she hires him as his shepherd and so Gabriel starts to ingratiate himself in the village of Weatherbury, um, which has a lot of these very fun little side characters throughout the whole story that add such a life and breath to the world that Thomas Hardy is creating. And it's one of my favorite things about Thomas Hardy novels is how realistic his worlds always feel, no matter how ridiculous his characters are or the actions that they do. The world feels lived in. It feels like well-worn and comfortable in a way that is very rare and I really can't think of with any other authors that I've ever read. So we see our new set, our new stage of actors and and people, and we find Gabriel working as Bathsheba's shepherd in the town of Weatherbury. Now, while all this craziness with the fire is going on, it is brought to uh, Gabriel's attention that one of Bathsheba's maids like maid servants or whatever a young woman named fanny robin has gone missing she's nowhere to be found no one in the village knows where she is normally everyone would be focused on finding her at this point but the fire was enough of a distraction to keep them from finding her there's talk in the town that she's going to casterbridge to meet up with her supposed lover who is a member of the military he's a sergeant or whatever so she's like run off to go be with him and no one ha really has the time or attention to go find her necessarily so after all the fire hullabaloo happens after gabriel is brought on as bathsheba's shepherd uh they tell him that he can stay at a nearby like little inn there's a place for him to stay for the few nights until he finds a place to go and while he's walking there he is alone it's at night you know walking through the trees and he sees this young skinny woman who's kind of hiding behind like a a tree she's like clearly trying not to be found he has no idea who she is he's asking her do you need any help like what's going on and she begs him don't tell anybody you saw me like i'm heading to Casterbridge. i'm going to do like meet this man whatever like we're going to go get married all this kind of stuff and but Gabriel, being the extremely kind-hearted person that he is, willing to help really anybody and give whatever he has, he offers her um, some money and says, here, take this, like, go make your way there. I won't tell anybody what I saw, blah, blah, blah. So she runs away. We eventually come to learn that this was Fanny Robin, the missing maidservant. She makes it to Casterbridge and finds her lover who's still in the barracks because it's late at night by the time she makes it she's shouting up at his window saying like when are we going to get married like i'm here i left i'm here to get married meet me at this church or whatever and he's like fine fine i will marry you blah 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 because you know like he's kind of like a player not necessarily he like loves fanny i'm sure but like doesn't want to necessarily tie himself down to a wife kind of thing but he said he appeases her he's like fine meet me at this church at this time at this day blah 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 and it jumps back to our characters um Bathsheba begins running the show for her farm and the estate and a lot of the men in the village are kind of like hey what happened to your bailiff who's the guy that runs it all she ends up having to fire him because she found out at the night of the fire that he was stealing from her so she fires the bailiff, 
she's now completely in charge of her farm. And a lot of the men in the village who work for her have this feeling that she's going to name any one of them as the bailiff at any time. But she doesn't. She wants to run it on her own because, like we talked about earlier, she's extremely independent. She is here to do what was given to her. The estate was given to her. She wants to run it. She wants to do all the things that the bailiff and the, the head farmer of the estate would do. So that means going to markets, bargaining for resources with the other farmers in the nearby towns and villages, and all this good stuff. As she goes, this market town, I believe, is also in Casterbridge, that she goes every one, like regularly to trade goods and services. Um, all the men of the other farms are just as infatuated with her as Gabriel was in the beginning, and as all the men of this book tend to be throughout the whole story. It's this stereotype that gets played, but Bathsheba doesn't fall into it the way that other women might. Like, she understands the affections and attentions of men, but that doesn't really register to her. She doesn't care about the way that men care about her. And there's only one exception to this going on in her life, and it is a nearby farmer um, named William Boldwood. He is about 40, much older than her, and he's very experienced, and he's extremely, extremely hard-nosed. Like, he doesn't he doesn't have really any passions or excitements of life. His whole life is just doing my job, get up, do my job, go to bed, get up, do my job, go to bed type of thing. No one, everyone kind of makes jokes that you can't like break through his barrier and his exterior. And Bathsheba notices that of all the men at the trading spots in the, in the town, he's the only one that doesn't look at her. He's the only one that doesn't give her special attention. He really just like, she doesn't even register on his radar. And because this is kind of a novelty for her at this point, she can't stop really thinking about him. And she kind of thinks like, what could I do to actually get him to pay attention to me? Like, if it's not my beauty, if it's not any of this stuff, like what could possibly do it? She doesn't actually have feelings for him. Like, it's just like kind of this, you know, fancy in her mind. Like, she's so used to all these other people in her life being like obsessed with her, but this man just really doesn't care. So with the help of her other maid who's around um they're kind of like having fun one night making jokes talking about the men and her maids is kind of being like what do you think of this guy what do you think of this guy because she's a she's a young bachelorette she has no attachments she has no marriage proposals or anything like that and that's not the norm of the time especially because she's in charge of a farm so a lot of people are like you should get a husband to help you blah 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 and then they started talking about boldwood and Bathsheba kind of said, like, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't even look at me. Like, any of this kind of stuff is kind of weird, blah, blah, blah. And so they decide, well, what if we just sent him, like, a valentine? Do you think he'd notice you then? It was totally a joke. Like, not a good one, obviously. So they do. She writes him a valentine um, very playfully, seals it with red wax, and the seal she uses on the wax says, marry me on it. It's a complete joke. But Boldwood, who has no joking bone in his body, does not realize that the Valentine was in jest and soon is the idea of love and infatuation explodes within him. He becomes obsessed with Bathsheba. The idea of a woman pursuing him, like this Valentine showing up in his door, it's like a it's like a world was exposed to him of female attention and infatuation. So he is obsessed with Bathsheba. Bathsheba. She's got a kind of a hard name um, to say. But we soon see again, he proposes marriage to Bathsheba, who is is not a marriage type of gal. Clearly at this point, she's already denied Gabriel. She's denied Boldwood, who is more well off like a farmer than she is, would be able to help. Their farms are right next to each other. It would, it's kind of this like perfect quote unquote thing on paper. But again, she does not love him. She doesn't love Boldwood. She doesn't even quite know what love is at this point because she's never really experienced it for herself. And so she denies him, um, but not in a full-on I will never marry you kind of way. She does toy with the idea. Like, what would it look like to be married to this person? What would a marriage look like? Because her idea of love and marriage is completely separated from emotion at this point. It's almost like a business transaction. But Boldwood, who has lived his whole life looking at it as a business transaction, is all of a sudden making decisions based on emotions. And for him, Bathsheba marrying him is because, like, I'm fucking in love with you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But she doesn't. She doesn't give him a no. She doesn't give him a yes. Any of those things. She kind of leaves him hanging by a thread. Um, which is not super nice, Miss Bathsheba. Miss Bathsheba makes lots of mistakes throughout this book. 
but it's okay, as we'll learn. She tends to take the hard way of avoiding scrapes and bumps and falling off her horse, right? So instead of hurting Boldwood, or instead of fully solidifying herself as a wife, she leans back and avoids the confrontation, as we saw earlier. Gabriel now, who has come to understand his affections for for Bathsheba will never be returned. Gabriel is just so in love with her. And because he knows he can't have her, he'll just, he's one of those perfect men who says, I'll do anything I can just to make sure you live a good life. So I'm going to work as hard as I can on your farm to make sure you live a good life. And when he sees her toying with Boldwood, they kind of have this confrontation and he scolds her in a way that's very similar to um, Jane Austen's Emma when Emma gets scolded for making fun of that one older woman who kind of lost her way and it changes like the way she looks at, I can't remember his name now, so mad at myself, but it's very similar. When Gabriel rebukes Bathsheba for, for her thoughtlessness and carelessness with Boldwood's feelings, she gets very mad, like because they don't have that kind of relationship really. And she sends Gabriel away in a fit of pique and anger. She dismisses him from his job. All the other men in the village are like, why the fuck would you do that? He's literally the hardest working person here. Like, we need him. No one else can really help with these sheep the way that he can. All this kind of stuff. And she's like, I don't need him. Blah, blah, blah. But, unfortunately, this thing that I had to look up and see what it actually meant because I've never heard of it before. Her sheep eat something specific that causes them to bloat, which is like their bellies fill up with gas until they, like, die. It's really gross and, like, fucked up a little bit. But all her village men, or like her farmer worker men, are like, help the sheep. There's blo the bloats ripping through the sheep. We don't know what to do. And the only person, there's like a very specific procedure that needs to be done to release the gas. But if you don't do it right, it'll kill the sheep. So none of the men know how to do it quite right. And none of them are like confident enough to try because they don't want to just kill all these sheep on accident. And they all tell her. Gabriel Oak knows how to do it. Mr. Oak knows how to do it. Go find Shepherd Oak. We need him, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I don't need him. I'll figure it out on her own, on my own, blah, blah, blah. She realizes that's not going to happen. She sends a man to go get Gabriel, like beg for him to come back. Gabriel sends him back and says, beggars can't be choosers. If you want me to come, you have to come ask me. Oh, which is such like big dick energy. I love this scene. So Bathsheba, still pissed. She's like, I don't want to go talk to him. No way. Like he's really going to test my pride this way. She finally, for fear of losing her income with the sheep and losing her whole flock, she's like, fine. She gets on a horse and she goes to Gabriel and she asks Gabriel herself, like, please, I'm begging you, come help me, blah, blah, blah. They return to the farm. Gabriel's like, fine, you came and asked, I'll, I'll come back. Return to her farm. He saves the sheep except for maybe a few who died. And because of that, she's like, you know, okay, come back. I'm sorry. Come back to my farm and be my shepherd again. And so... He does. And this scene is one of my favorite moments of the whole book because it kind of like firmly establishes this relationship with Gabriel and Bathsheba that they do need each other. Bathsheba needs Gabriel more than she wants to admit. And Gabriel needs her attention and love more than he wants to admit. He can't just like leave her. He can't abandon her. He, ju he just loves her. And so they form this very strong friendship and connection based on respect and, and, and admiration for how willing they are to stand by their own morals and how willing they are to bend when they need to bend. And it's such a beautiful little connection that just gets better and better as the book goes on. But as of this moment, Gabriel is back. Boldwood is still in love with her. And she now has to decide what to do with Boldwood because she can't keep stringing him along. She knows Gabriel is right. Life continues on with Bathsheba avoiding giving Boldwood a straight answer about his proposal. And during this time of avoidance, Bathsheba happens to cross paths with a young and dashing man named Sergeant Frank Troy. While out taking an evening stroll, they nearly collide in the shadows of the overhanging trees. And Troy, like all the men in her life, is immediately infatuated with Bathsheba's beauty. So much so that he oversteps many boundaries in telling her how beautiful she is and how he wants her in his life, which in turn flares the anger of Bathsheba, who clearly is a woman with no appreciation for surface-level compliments. And this anger continues to bubble and simmer in Bathsheba's gut as she learns Troy is actually a native of Weatherbury and has returned home only on momentary vacation. 
She can't avoid coming in contact with him. She can't avoid his overuse of praise and, you know, like flattery that he throws on her. And he's he crosses social boundaries that are meant to keep men and women from having inappropriate relationships types of thing. So in her mind, she's like, I hate him. I feel angry. I feel all this kind of stuff. But in reality, it's kind of that like weird edge of the coin that can easily flip to passion and desire. But right now is firmly on the like anger and doesn't care about him type of thing. Um, he lends a hand harvesting the crops of her farm and Bathsheba continues to have interactions with him that leave him, her simultaneously angry and intrigued. These feelings come to a head one night when Troy asks her to meet in a secluded area of the nearby woods, which she fights with, but eventually does, and shows off his swordsmanship abilities in an effort to impress her. His skill and suaveness finally went out, and Bathsheba admits to herself that she's truly fallen for the showboating young sergeant, feeling the flames of anger turn quickly to those of passion and desire. The ever-astute Gabriel notices the interest blooming between the two and tries in vain to discourage Bathsheba from pursuing Troy as a romantic option, claiming Boldwood would be a much more suitable and reliable match for her in terms of matrimony. But, as many young naive women in love tend to do, she ignores Gabriel's warnings and leans heavily into the feelings brought forward by Troy's presence. Boldwood also becomes aware of the tentative connection forming between the sergeant and Miss Everdeen and becomes aggressive and territorial towards Troy, trying to stake a claim he does not have for the affections of Bathsheba. Troy must eventually leave Weatherbury for the town of Bath, and in his absence, Boldwood tries again in vain to convince Bathsheba to forget Troy and marry him instead, stating that he won't be able to stop the jealousy and anger he feels if he should ever see Troy's face again. Bathsheba again manages to avoid giving Boldwood an answer and instead flees to Bath in order to warn Troy about returning to Weatherbury. They spend more days than she probably originally intended in Bath and eventually Troy, ignoring her, returns to Weatherbury anyway. Troy runs into Boldwood, who offers one last desperate plea to release his love so that he may in turn marry her, even going so far as to offer a monetary bribe to Troy, who considers the offer and eventually agrees to take the bribe. So Boldwood, a man of former pride and, you know, like strength and stoicness, is practically on his hands and knees begging this man to not pursue Bathsheba anymore, that his love is too strong that he cannot go on living if she's not with him. He's like pulling money out of his pocket. I'll give you anything I can. Troy, who's such a sneaky little piece of shit, is like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about the money. And then eventually he's like, yeah, okay, I'll take it. Takes the bribe. But soon, Boldwood learns that while... uh. While in Bath, Troy and Bathsheba had actually gotten married in secret and that his return to Weatherbury was solely to come claim his new home among the Everdeen estate. So Troy accepts the money. He accepts the bribe. He watches as Boldwood pretty much debases himself in front of him, all with the knowledge that he is already married to Bathsheba. So he just needles this man of every ounce of pride that he has just to be like, okay, but I already married her. Sorry. So, Boldwood is now defeated, humiliated, out hundreds of dollars as he watches the love of his life enter her new marital home with her newly married husband. Boldwood vows revenge and starts to decline rapidly, both mentally and professionally, so much so that everyone in the village kind of notices something is very, very wrong. Months pass. Bathsheba soon discovers that she made a terrible mistake with this man, Troy, because he is a degenerate gambler who is sapping the estate of money and and um, resources in order to keep his addiction going. He has no interest in farming and even put her farm at high risk of losing like over a year's worth of profits when a major storm came and instead of helping to preserve the crops that she had by covering them and keeping them from getting damaged by the storm, he instead gets everybody drunk on the farm because they're supposedly celebrating their wedding. All of the farmers and the helpers get hammered, except for Gabriel, who doesn't want to participate because he's like, you know, fuck that guy. He's He loves Bathsheba still. He doesn't want to be a part of all that bull, like bullshit. He sees that everybody is literally blacked out, drunk, passed out in a barn as the storm is rolling in. So Gabriel, on his own, starts 
covering up all the crops to try to help Bathsheba so she doesn't lose all this money. The storm is rolling in. He's working as hard as he can. And it's the middle of the night. Eventually, Bathsheba comes out and she sees him. And so the two of them begin working in earnest to save her crops and save her profit. This is one of those amazing scenes between Gabriel and Bathsheba where the truth and their um, respect and appreciation for each other can't really be hidden. And it's where you see Bathsheba kind of have this real moment of second guessing herself and her decision with Troy because Gabriel was that very first person that proposed marriage to her. And after all this time and all these interactions with these different men who have proposed marriage and the one she actually ends up marrying, he's still the only one there with her, helping her out through thick and thin. This is another instance of him coming in at the last minute and saving her ass in a way that no other man would, even though everyone else gives her the love and affection of her beauty and her like amazing like outside perspective. He's the one there who's like, no, this is the real way for me to help you. And this is the real way for me to show you love. And they kind of have this moment of true friendship and affection for each other which she knows that she knows that gabriel loves her but she doesn't want to lose this support that he finds like that she finds within him so she begins to really kind of look at her life in a way that she's resigned to now she made this mistake she can't go back on her mistake this was hers alone she's run fully into those branches she tried so desperately to avoid all this time and Eventually, as time goes on, um, they run into this woman on the side of the road. They're returning from a town. They're kind of in an argument because he's asking her for more money. Troy is at this point um, asking her for more money to do more gambling. And she's like, no, what the hell's wrong with you? He kind of wheedles her down to like 20 bucks or something like that. And they're driving by and they see this very skinny, frail, pregnant girl on the side of the road. She might not. They might not know she's actually pregnant. But she's very small. And they're like, oh, my God, what's wrong with this girl? They get down, like, uh, Troy gets down to help her, notices who she is immediately, and continue like, sends Bathsheba onward, like, kind of smacks the horse's ass and is like, keep getting up, you know, whatever. So he doesn't, so she doesn't see him interact with this girl. The girl on the side of the road is none other than Fanny Robin, who was that maidservant that went missing in the very beginning of the book. She went to Casterbridge to go meet her sergeant that she was in love with, that they were going to get married, all this kind of stuff. And yes, surprise, the sergeant happened to be Troy, who is now married to Bathsheba. So we find out that they were going to get married. They had planned to get married. Troy said, okay, fine, I'll marry you, Fanny. Meet me at this church at this time on this day and we'll get married. So he goes to the church. He's waiting up at the altar, waiting, waiting, waiting. She doesn't show up. He's fucking pissed. He walks out of the church and he sees her walking out of a church across the street and realizes, oh my fucking God, she went to the wrong church. She is in tears. She's so apologetic. She's like, please, I'm sorry. Let's just do this again next week. He is fucking embarrassed, humiliated, angry, pissed off, all those things. He's like, absolutely not. Calls off the wedding. Goodbye. Kind of leaves Fanny at this point because he's like, He's very prideful and she just like embarrassed him in front of the whole congregation. So he leaves. Um, and then in that intervening time, everything happens with Bathsheba. When he finds Fanny again on the side of the road, he gives her that last 20 bucks that, that he got, got out of Bathsheba. He gives it to Fanny and he says, okay, I'll meet you in Casterbridge in two days time. Make your way there. I will find you. Just wait for me, whatever. So Fanny who is extremely weak and she's pregnant. So she doesn't have all the strength in the world. She's walks from where they are all the way to Casterbridge, which is so fucking far. She's literally barely making it. It's one chapter of her progress. And it's like, she's clawing her way to the Casterbridge workhouse, which is where people go when they have nowhere else to go. She makes it to the workhouse and dies. Um, we come to learn dies in childbirth because yes, Fanny was pregnant so they put her in a coffin with her baby. They call up Weatherbury. Not call up, you know. They send someone to Weatherbury saying, hey, we have this person who's from your village. If someone, family, or whoever wants to come claim her because we don't know who she is. Bathsheba learns like, oh my God, they found Fanny. All she knows about Fanny was that she used to be her maid and that she's been missing this whole time. And now here she is. She's like, holy shit. Okay, well, we'll go get her. 
So she sends one of her farmer workers to go get the corpse or like the coffin with the corpse and bring it back to Weatherbury so that they can give her like a proper funeral because she's, you know, a member of their village. They should give her the right respects or whatever. Um, so the guy who brings the the casket in, he's coming into the town. He stops at a nearby bar and he's kind of just like gets drunk on accident, not meaning not on accident. This all the other people in the village are like, just have a drink with us. And he gets drunk, too drunk to move the coffin. So who should show up um, and save the day again, of course, is Gabriel. So Gabriel's like, fine, dude, you just get drunk. I'll continue. I'll take this casket over to Bathsheba's manor because that's where she wants it at and all that kind of stuff. And when he goes out to see the casket, he sees that it's Fanny, like her name is on the casket. And he knows that the sergeant, that Fanny loved is Troy. He figured it out kind of a little bit ago and didn't want to hurt Bathsheba by saying that there was that her old maidservant was actually Troy's like love or whatever. Um, so he's been keeping it a secret from her. But when he sees the coffin and he sees that her name is written on it in chalk, because that's how they do it then, um, he sees underneath her name is and child written on the chalk, meaning that it's Fanny and an infant in the casket and he's like oh no because he knows that that baby is troy's baby and so again to protect her he erases the chalk marking that says that there's a baby in the casket so that Bathsheba will never know that troy has an illegitimate child with another woman because he loves her so much he just wants to protect her but Bathsheba being like a she feels bad that she never really knew fanny and wants to show her respect she's like bring the casket into my house. We'll let it sit in the house this whole time so that nothing happens to it, all this kind of stuff. And she hears through the grapevine that this girl, Fanny, was pregnant and that she died walking from this certain road all the way to Casterbridge on this day. And when they say that, Bathsheba begins to put two and two together and realizes, oh my God, that woman on the side of the road is Fanny who I knew she had a, that, that my husband knew who that woman was. Like she kind of got a weird feeling when they ran into her on the side of the road and then he sent her away. Like he sent Bathsheba to keep going. And she's like, holy shit, that was Fanny. And the other pieces that she's found begin to click into place. Because a few days ago, she found a lock of hair that Troy had that was blonde, which Bathsheba is notably dark haired. She finds a blonde hair in his pocket watch. And he's like, oh my God, he literally does love another woman. And because she has to prove to herself that this is the woman she opens the casket and she sees the baby on the inside and sees the blonde hair of fanny and knows this is the woman that my husband is actually in love with and troy now he's been gone because he went to go meet fanny he has no idea she's dead he went to go meet her in casterbridge couldn't find her anywhere he's like worried and pissed he comes home he sees the casket in his like living room and his worst fears are confirmed and he opens it and sees Bathsheba in or sees Fanny in there and is just so heartbroken. He kisses the corpse. He turns to Bathsheba who is not only just learned of the infidelities of her husband and the lies of her husband and that this woman who she used to work for her, who she feels bad for because is dead, but also has a hatred for because she has the affections of her husband. He turns to Bathsheba and says, this woman is more to me, dead as she is, than you ever were or are or can be. End quote. Oh my God. And then even says like marriage will never, marriage means nothing. Marriage will, does not mean that I love you the way that I loved her. Like, oh, stabbed through the fucking heart. Holy shit. The next day he leaves. He spends all his remaining money on a tombstone for Fanny Robin. He has it chiseled, erected by Francis Troy in beloved memory of Fanny Robbins. So insult to goddamn injury. He tells Bathsheba he doesn't love her. He'll never love her the way he loved Fanny. And then spends all his money on a tombstone that literally professes his love to another woman. Like, whoa. So absolutely hating himself for allowing Fanny to die. Unable to just look at Bathsheba anymore because he's like, I'm over this shit. He leaves. He goes on a long walk by the beach, you know, being dramatic as fuck. He bathes in the sea, takes all his clothes off before he gets in there. And he's like, like just laying in the ocean, like, oh my God, I need to feel something, whatever. And a strong current carries him away, um, away from where he is. And eventually he gets rescued by a little rowboat or whatever. They take him to another town, but he's like, well, 
I think I'm just going to stay here. And he never returns home. So everybody in Weatherbury finds his clothes, doesn't find him, assumes the current has taken him out, and they profess him dead, essentially making now Bathsheba a widow. Okay, so if you've made it this far, I know this is a bit of a longer episode, but if you've made it this far, shit is truly about to get absolutely crazy if it's not already gotten crazy. So Bathsheba in the eyes of Weatherbury is now a widow. Um, Troy, now that he's in a different town, picks up a new career as a traveling actor because he's such a fucking asshat. So he's just wandering around as a traveling actor, just like refusing to return to his life because he doesn't want to deal with any of the responsibilities of the fucking shitstorm that would be waiting for him. So time passes. Bathsheba is in this state of mourning that's socially acceptable. She's wearing all black. And there's this kind of like, I don't know if it's a law. It might just be like a weird social norm. But like seven years is supposed to pass. I feel like it's seven. It might be six. Some Six or seven years is supposed to pass before a widow can't get remarried to another person. Um, but in the meantime, Crazy Eye Boldwood, who's literally brain melted the day he got that Valentine from Bathsheba in the mail, he's like, oh shit, there's my opening. I'm coming, crawling my way in. So Boldwood is back. He's like, Bathsheba, please, I will take care of you. I have my farm. You have your farm. Let's just do this. I'm in love with you, blah, blah, blah. He knows that he can't be too over the top with his affections because it'll scare her away. So he tries so hard to hide how much he's just like a fucking obsessed with her. And he continues to needle her. And now, you know, she's very guilt-ridden at this point, Bathsheba is, because she feels like she's kind of just dropped a fucking bomb on like multiple people's lives for no reason whatsoever, including her own. So Bathsheba reluctantly after being like fucking ground down by boldwood says fine in six years after six years has passed of my husband being dead i will marry you boldwood and he's like oh my god yes like thank you lord like all this happens because he plans a christmas party which he's not a party person so everyone in the village is like oh shit let's go to this party like this guy's finally throwing a party he plans a party literally just to get Bathsheba in his house so that he can corner her and be like please marry me oh my god for like blah 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 so this happens he's having the christmas party he corners Bathsheba He's like, please, as she's getting ready to leave because she doesn't want to overstay her welcome because she doesn't want to give him the wrong impression, but literally just showing up gives him the wrong impression. So he's like, please marry me. He has a fucking ring. This guy, he's so insane. He has a ring. She's like, okay, fine. I'll marry you in six years. He pulls out a ring. He's like, well, would you wear this? She's like, no, you psychopath. I'm not going to wear this ring. Like he literally, he's like ready to marry her right at this moment. In the meantime, Troy is in Casterbridge. He just narrowly was identified by Bathsheba and Boldwood, who were there last week for a, um, like a market. You know how that she would go to market and trade goods and stuff or whatever. So they're there again. And he was there performing. So he almost got caught and almost was exposed for being alive and not dead. But he managed to stay hidden and saw that Boldwood was back at it, was back at trying to get Bathsheba to like marry him and all this stuff, whatever. So a week passes He's trying to make a plan because he's kind of like toying with the idea of going back to his old life. Troy is because he's a fucking asshole. So he's like, well, I don't want Boldwood to have what was mine because he knows that Boldwood is going to go after Bathsheba. And he's like, I did have a nice house over there, didn't I? I had a lot of property. I had a nice wife, blah, blah, blah. So he's like, hmm, I think I will go back. So now fast forward to a week. We're at the party. Boldwood finally gets Bathsheba to marry him. He's so happy. Like she said, yes, even though it's fucking six years in the future, like anything could happen. So they're all at the party. And then all of a sudden fucking Troy shows up at the party. Like he could not be any more of a fucking idiot, but he shows up at the Christmas party and he's like, I'm alive. I'm here to get my wife. I'm here to come back and claim my fucking blah, blah, blah. Literally a year has gone by since he disappeared. Like everyone thought he was dead for a year. And he comes back. Bathsheba is like, huh? Literally looks like she's seen a ghost. She's like scared. Like, like shrinks back from him in shock and dismay because she knows she just told Boldwood that she would marry him in six years. So he shows up. He like orders Bathsheba to come with him. Troy does. She's like kind of just moves back from him. And then he grabs her arm and she flinches. And when Bathsheba flinches, it is the last straw for Boldwood. He turns around. 
grabs a fucking double barrel shotgun off the top of his fireplace, whips it over to Troy, and fucking shoots him straight through the back or the front or whatever. It doesn't matter. He shoots Troy and Troy falls to the ground, you know, whatever. He then tries, Boldwood, to turn the barrel on himself and use his fucking foot to kill himself with the shotgun after killing Troy. But because everybody was like, holy shit, what's going on? They stopped him. Um, it's, un it's unsuccessful, unsuccessful of an a suicide attempt. And so instead, he goes and turns himself in to the police for shooting Troy. Troy does die. He eventually succumbs to his injuries and dies, leaving Bathsheba to finally be a literal true widow at this point. Boldwood turns himself into the police and he is awaiting trial and like sentencing in the um, nearby goal or jail, you know. Meanwhile, everyone in the village of Weatherbury kind of feels bad. Like they knew Boldwood just lost his fucking mind. Like he was not in a right state of mind, a fit state of mind to be held fully accountable for this crime. So they all kind of create a little um, like, what is it called? They get like a petition to send to the courts to like not kill Boldwood because the sentence for murder would be hanging. And they were like, he was fucking crazy. Like, don't hang him. It really wasn't his fault. And they're all waiting on pins and needles to see what's going to happen and all this kind of stuff. And eventually they do learn that Boldwood is just sentenced to life or to prison until the Queen's like pleasure whenever they decide to like he can be released at any time type of thing but it's pretty much just like life in prison until they decide to release him so he manages to escape being hanged or hung or whatever the fucking term is um and now we see gabriel has kind of was given boldwood's estate he left him in his like will pretty much he's not dead but like the estate goes to to gabriel so gabriel is running boldwood's farm and bathsheba's farm at the same time and the village people are kind of like, ooh, is Bathsheba going to marry Gabriel now? Because they're always trying to put her on some motherfucker, you know? So stupid. But Bathsheba just comes to rely on her friend Gabriel, who she now fully acknowledges is like maybe her only real true friend she's ever actually had. She has now buried her good-for-nothing husband, and she buries him in the same plot as Fanny and their child so that they could all rest together, which is just like Bathsheba. Oh, my heart. So she comes to rely and, and knows Gabriel is like the only man really in her life that will be there for her in any way. Um, until he comes to her and says, I have to go. I'm getting ready to go to the United States. Once my um, contract with you is up this next year, I'm going to leave. I have to go. She's like, what the fuck? Like, what What do you mean you're going to leave? As the idea of Gabriel leaving sits in her mind, she realizes, like, she needs him in her life for her own well-being and just for, for everything. Like, she needs this man. So that night, she goes to visit him in his little cottage for the first time ever going into his house alone um, to find out exactly, like, why... Why are you deserting me, Gabriel? Why are you leaving me now after everything that's happened? Like, what could possibly make you leave finally, he says, you know, everyone's saying that I'm that I want to marry you. The village is gossiping that I'm working this hard for you and on the Boldwood farm so that I could get into your good graces and marry you. And that's not fair to you. And I don't want to do that to you. So I'm just going to leave because he fucking loves her so much. He doesn't want any more gossip and scrutiny to fall on her, even if that means giving up all that he's come to gain now. Because remember, in the beginning, he started out with Bathsheba and Weatherbury destitute, just being her shepherd. He's fully come to the point now where he's the bailiff of Bathsheba's farm and he's fully running Boldwood's farm. So he has status and he has actual tangible things here that could keep him here. But because he doesn't want her to get hurt so much, he's leaving. And she, you know, upon hearing this, is she says that it's too absurd, you know, too soon to think of by far. And he gets a little pissed. He's like, yeah, you know. Just so crazy, you know, so absurd of us to actually get married. And she gets a little defensive and she's like, well, I didn't say, I didn't say absurd. I, I just said too soon, you know, like not too absurd. And he's like, oh, if it's not too absurd, then tell me right now, will you marry me? Let's, let's get married then. Like he proposes again, one last chance to ask for her hand in marriage. And she says, yes. 
and they are like oh my god they fully acknowledge the feelings they have for each other the the long-held appreciation and love and acceptance and respect they've had for each other this whole time finally Bathsheba's like it's been you it's always been you and Gabriel has always been there waiting for her and so they have a very quiet ceremony where they get married with like two other people there to see them they go and they start their life and the whole village is so excited for them and happy for them and celebrating them and the end of the book is like multiple paragraphs where Gabriel calls Bathsheba his wife and it is just so good. It is the happiest ending of any Thomas Hardy book I've ever read. Gabriel gets the goddamn girl, everybody. I, from like page 10, I wrote down in my journal, if Gabriel doesn't get the girl in the end, I'm going to kill myself. And he got her, damn it. And I'm, I live to see another fucking day. I was so happy when this book ended because... As you know, with all the other Thomas Hardy stories, the ones I've even shared on here, they end super depressing majority of the time. Never a happy ending in sight. This one, though, for the two of them to just live their life. Like, listen, Bathsheba got scraped and scratched. She got run through the fucking mill for trying to avoid doing all those things. Like that one foreshadowing event we talked about in the beginning. It is so perfect in the way that she she tries to go against the grain to avoid the scrapes, but you can't in life, you know? And so these two of them end up married together, running the farm, and that is the end of Far From the Madding Crowd. And oh my fucking God, I love Thomas Hardy so much. The way that I want to live in this world, even though it's fucked up and bad things are always happening all the time and these people are crazy, I want to be there, damn it, because it feels so lived in. It feels so real. And Gabriel and Bathsheba, mm, I love a fucking relationship. That is founded on just like, I love you. I know I can't have you, but I'm always going to be here for you and I respect you. Like, oh, Gabriel is the man, the fucking man. Oh, my God. It's just it's such a feel good book. And I was so happy to like end the year on that book because I only I read one after it, but it was my second to last read of 2022. And it was amazing. And I I just love those two characters so much. There is. There is like so much genuine appreciation going on there. And and even though it can be easy to get frustrated with Bathsheba, who makes so many mistakes throughout the story, she gets her karma in the way that a lot of Hardy's characters get their karma. But she gets it in a way that like leads her to where she should have been the whole time, which is so, ugh, I just seriously fucking love it so much. I can't even tell you how much I love it. I would recommend Far From the Madding Crowd um, as a hardy book to read. It's not hard. LOL. It's not a hard read. It is so dynamic and and full of life and just it, like, oh, it just invites you in and keeps you there and you never want to leave the town of Weatherbury and you never want to leave the drama and, and the intrigue of this little tiny village. And it was just amazing. It's what I love about classics. And that's why I had to come back and talk about it. And this episode's definitely going to be the longest, one of the longer ones I've had because it deserved to have all of those things highlighted. Um, so there we go, guys. We're back. I did another episode. Don't get pissed at me. I am still here. I am still reading. I read 40 books in 2022, which is not nearly enough, but that's okay. I will continue on. Um, but in the meantime, find me on social media. My Instagram is Ange Suris or podcast instagram is read 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 your heart out i don't really use that instagram all that much but like you can follow me if you want um stay safe out there no matter where you are no matter what's going on treat people with kindness and of course read your heart out